This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at Patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. Two that you might like are A Companion to Marx's Capital, The Complete Edition, and The Limits to Capital, which are both by David Harvey and out in new editions. For nearly 40 years, David Harvey has written and lectured on capital, becoming one of the world's foremost Marxist scholars. Based on his lectures, this volume, bringing together his guides to volumes 1, 2, and much of 3, presents this depth of learning to a broader audience, guiding first-time readers through a fascinating and deeply rewarding text. A companion to Marx's capital offers fresh, original, and sometimes critical interpretations of a book that changed the course of history and, as Harvey intimates, may do so again. Now a classic of Marxian economics, The Limits to Capital provides one of the best theoretical guides to the history and geography of capitalist development. In this edition, Harvey updates his seminal text with a substantial discussion of the turmoil in world markets today. Delving into concepts such as fictitious capital and uneven geographical development, Harvey takes the reader step-by-step through layers of crisis formation, beginning with Marx's controversial argument concerning the falling rate of profit, and closing with a timely foray into the geopolitical and geographical implications of Marx's work. A companion to Marx's capital, the complete edition, and the limits to capital— are both by David Harvey and out now in new editions from Verso Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm temporarily broadcasting from Santiago de Chile. Washington governor and newly announced Democratic presidential aspirant Jay Inslee proudly identifies the fight against climate change as his core issue. But recently, Inslee literally said that the only thing Democrats could have done better in the past to fight climate change would have been to have forced Ralph Nader into exile at sea in 2000. It's somewhat irrelevant whether establishment liberals are sincerely aware of the threat posed by climate catastrophe because they are constitutionally hemmed in by a small-bore, technocratic, and profoundly neoliberal ideology. Dianne Feinstein is another sad and infuriating case in point. But the climate justice movement, including the Sunrise Movement and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, understand not only the urgency of the problem, but also the magnitude of the political-economic response that solving it requires. To fight global warming, according to the Green New Deal, we must transform the unequal, alienating, and exploitative system that carbon emissions are rooted in. For both policy and political reasons, there is no successful fight for our planet that is not also a fight for justice. Indeed, this issue highlights precisely why neoliberalism's abstraction of policy from politics is a form of nonsense that functions to obscure the fact that bad policies are advanced by disempowering the democratic people. Anyhow, this is what I'm discussing with my guest today, Green New Deal architect Rihanna Gunn-Wright. 
But first, I want to urge you to read Jacobin's current series on the Green New Deal, which you can read at jacobinmag.com slash series slash green hyphen new hyphen deal. And I want to read from one piece entitled AOC's Green New Deal Starts Strong, written by Alyssa Battistoni and Danielle Aldana-Cohen, to give you some context before we get going. They write, quote, The Ocasio-Cortez Markey Resolution is the only proposal that's come close to the scale of ambition we need to face scientific reality. It's clear from the latest IPCC report that our best shot of keeping warming near 1.5 degrees Celsius is to prioritize not only green technology development, but feminist and egalitarian social policies and increasing global cooperation. It will make some people nervous, for sure, including the many Democrats who have signaled support for the GND, but likely had something tamer in mind. The right, meanwhile, is already denouncing socialism at every turn. But their decades of red-baiting may finally be coming back to bite them with the GND. It's clear that this is going to be denounced as socialist, no matter what. So it might as well actually be pretty socialist. Donald Trump's climate-denying anti-socialism is the best propaganda a radical GND could possibly have. Still, Trump won't win us the GND all by himself, nor will AOC. Achieving any of its aims will require putting massive pressure on our allies, striking fear into our enemies, and building the mass power to shut down business as usual. Fortunately, the resolution also suggests where that power might come from. It points out that climate change, pollution, and other environmental harms have been dumped on, quote, indigenous peoples, communities of color, migrant communities, deindustrialized communities, depopulated rural communities, the poor, low-income workers, women, the elderly, the unhoused, people with disabilities, and youth. That's a lot of people. It sounds like a pretty good start to a new left-wing coalition. That's Alyssa Battistoni and Danielle Aldana-Cohen. And before we move on, I'm going to briefly ask you to support this podcast with your money at patreon.com slash the dig. We need you. And if you contribute $10 or more a month, we'll send you book swag. Contribute what you can now at patreon.com slash the dig. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash the dig. See, I said briefly, I am experimenting with an occasionally shorter pitch. Okay, here's Rihanna Gunwright, who's been responsible for drafting the Green New Deal as policy director at the think tank New Consensus. She was previously the policy director for Abdul El Sayed's 2018 gubernatorial campaign and, amongst many other things, has also worked as the policy analyst for the Detroit Health Department. Brianna Gunn-Wright, welcome to The Dig. Oh my gosh, thank you. I'm happy to be here. Also, I love the name The Dig. It sounds so mysterious. We've discussed the Green New Deal on the show before, but we should start with a quick summary. What is the Green New Deal? And why is it not only profoundly urgent in terms of fighting climate change, but also a rather genius way to make fighting climate change 
politically efficacious? Okay, so the Green New Deal is a plan at its very beginning stages about how do we meet the demands of climate change and the scale, speed, and scope uh, that the science dictates through an economic mobilization that will at once decarbonize our entire economy and also protect people during what is going to be, regardless of whether it's done through a GND or otherwise, an a massive economic transformation, how do we protect people, and then how do we use that transformation to build a more just and fair economy for all for all Americans. So that's what the Green New Deal is in a nutshell. I think a few things set it apart, I think, from a typical policy proposal. One is that it's incredibly comprehensive, and that is because of what I said before. One, we have to decarbonize our entire economy, so not just power and electricity, but transit and industry and agriculture. It's going to take an entire sort of change to the way that we produce and also the way that we build what our infrastructure looks like. And then uh, the other reason is, again, because it's so massive, you need policies in place to protect people and usher them through to the other side uh, and to make sure that the other side is is a bright one uh, for workers, because we know right now our economy doesn't work for the vast majority of working people, and especially those who don't work either and who shouldn't obviously be forgotten. I think the other thing is that instead of just a list of kind of policy proposals, our framework, because the Green New Deal is based on this mass economic mobilization and draws on a lot of industrial policy, uh, the framework is about projects, right? What kind of work needs to be done? Uh, what kind of things need to be flipped? And and I think a little bit less of just like standalone policy interventions. And then um, I think the third thing is just that justice and equity is at the center. We're very upfront about not only planning, right, and developing the Green New Deal in consultation and collaboration and partnership with frontline communities, but really designing it so that they're at the center, because these are the folks who have unwillingly often put their bodies and lives on the line for our dependence on fossil fuels. They're the ones whose communities are being polluted. They're the ones who are getting asthma. They're the ones who are getting black lung. So to ask them to shoulder the costs and the upheaval for the transition to the green economy too is just unconscionable. And we also know that unless we actually think about equity and design for it in a systemic way, you're going to get inequitable outcomes because you're setting a new structure on top of uneven ground and then being surprised when (laughs) the water ran down the slope (laughs) to the bottom, right? And it didn't spread itself evenly. But that's an illusion that a lot of our policy sort of plays into that equity just happens on its own through the history of other mobilizations, whether that's the New Deal, World War II. Um, Some people even talk about like the interstate highway system. We know that outcomes are not equitable unless you plan for them to be. That's just the society we live in. That's just our history. And those things are going to continue to play out unless you actively intervene in the processes. And as we've seen in France, if people feel like a transition to green energy is being done on working people's backs, they'll understandably revolt against it. It, Absolutely. Um, And that's in part because, one, we live in in an economy that I think... increasingly atomizes production and labor so that 
an individual worker becomes less and less valuable with automation and the ways that we've just like structured our labor markets here and to, and abroad too in in lots of places and so you're having people who already feel disempowered and not heard and then you are telling them that this transition needs to happen on their backs and it won't even solve the problems that they define right and that's an issue that i think comes up a lot in policy and that we're working really hard to sort of make try to make sure that and as we develop policy at new consensus for the green new deal that we don't replicate is that a lot of policy solves problems that folks in elite positions think people have or define and not the problems that people who are working or not elite define for themselves and that disconnect is what sinks a lot of policies before they get out of the gate and after they get out of the gate. But you have to put in actual work and thought and effort into talking to communities to figure out what are the problems that they have that they want to have solved and how do you do that through the mechanisms that you have at hand while also hitting your, you know, if there is an overarching goal like decarbonization while you do that too. And that seems like a real driving force behind the Green New Deal proposal is just looking concretely at the reality that narrow technocratic market mechanisms haven't worked not only as policy, but as politics. They haven't even become policy because the politics haven't worked. Just look at Obama's failed cap-and-trade proposal. On a policy level, as, as you said, we have to think big because decarbonizing the economy touches every piece of the economy and how we live in it. Housing, yeah. transportation, the electric grid, manufacturing, more. And politically, we need to embed climate politics in people's everyday struggles and desires. Absolutely. I, the way that I think about climate change and its influence by this incredibly smart professor, I think he's at Columbia Law called Jedediah Purdy, um, and he talks about climate change as sort of being like the the end result of the ways that we metabolize energy. Sort of like if, as a person, we eat food, we metabolize, we have certain you know byproducts out of that. Uh, and so imagine if you were to tell us all that, like, actually, we don't eat food anymore. Right. Like we don't eat food anymore. <laughs> we have to done. Now food is done right now. We subsist on, I don't know, some sort of like weird algae. Right. And that's the only thing that you can eat. And that's what which is kind of what we're saying to the planet. Like this is the things that we eat to create energy. We're going to change the source of that energy. And of course, when you change the source of energy, you change everything. If we were to stop eating food, think about all the effects that that would have on our economy. Like what happens to restaurants? Do they all just serve algae? Do some of them go out of business? What about grocery stores? Right? Like what about agriculture? Right? All of these things change. Well, some of those Silicon Valley people are drinking Soylent, but I think most people right. are interested. Right. You're right. Like does Soylent, like now do they just put algae in Soylent? Like, what is I don't the, want it. I'm sticking with food. <laughs> You know, are are we once we're post food, what happens? And but we are in this moment. It's like we have to change the what we eat, right? We have to change what we use to create energy, and that changes everything. And so I think the Green New Deal, one of the beauties of it, is that we take that change seriously, and we're trying to think really hard about one: if you have a change that big. How do you communicate what's on the other side to people? Because that's also part of it, is that we're asking folks at, across the spectrum, elites to non-elites, but especially everyday folks who like will get hit hardest, could get hit hardest if you aren't thoughtful about how you do decarbonization. We're telling them that this massive change is coming, and we have to be able to tell them what's on the other side. 
and why it's good for them and why they should care, especially because a lot of these folks, I think, that uh, haven't necessarily considered themselves climate voters, including myself until recently, they have a lot of other things going on, a lot of competing priorities, a lot of existential crises that they face in their own life. And so, but they also are more likely to care about climate change than some other groups, right? Like there's lots of data that women are more likely to care about climate change. People of color are more likely to care about climate change. Uh, and the numbers are high. I think something like there was a poll that was like something like 80% of African-Americans agreed about climate action. Like these are people who could become climate voters who would push for this if they knew what was on the other side and what it would entail and knew that they would be protected, right? And so we just think that that is a sort of an underexplored tech in climate and in sort of the fight around climate. And it's a very honest one to take because things will change. So why not just take the time to be thoughtful and proactive and think about what new power relationships do we want? How do we want things to change and how do we achieve that while also making sure that decarbonization is the forefront and foremost goal and the goal that we're willing to invest as much as we need to invest in order to deal with it. I think that's the other place where the Green New Deal sort of is an intervention is that we're saying that like, this is worth upsetting the apple cart for. Like having an inhabitable planet is a priority. It is something that we should throw the whole might of the nation at. And it also is a place where we have to do that because the reductions that we have to achieve on the timeline that we have to achieve them are so steep that without bringing the full might and the full focus and attention and resources of the country on into a fight against climate change, is going to be incredibly difficult, if not impossible, to succeed. And that just means that we're kicking those problems down to the next generation, which is incredibly unfair. Critics have attacked the Green New Deal for both being too broad and for lacking details, which I find really amazing, coming from people who have no plan at all for averting scientifically determined, going to happen if we don't do XYZ climate catastrophe. Yeah, I mean, I under I understand the pushback, right? Uh, because like, I was ra- it feels weird to say I was raised, right? Obviously, I was raised as a human being, but I think you also get raised as professional, right? In whatever area that you in come in as a young babe, and you like grow and you mature, and I so in lots of ways I was raised in these same circles. Not not I wasn't involved in environmental policy until much more recently, but. You know, you and, come from Wonkland. Sort of, I do come from Wonkland. That's where I live, and it's also a place that I actually deeply love for lots of reasons. I have a lot of issues with it, wow. but <laughs> I think that I I love I love dealing with details. I love. I mean, on the Abdul campaign, we put out 250 pages of policy. If you're yeah. not a big fucking nerd, you do that, right? <laughs> that's, that's kind of like a. a part of who I am. So I get, I get it. And in Wonkland details, uh, reign supreme. Uh, but I think we have to sort of move out of that in this moment. One, because there's, even though people like to treat the solutions as settled, there are so many active and raging debates often about how these solutions will affect frontline communities. And we have to do our due diligence and think about those and have those debates and figure out it's even especially in a comprehensive framework like the Green New Deal, what solutions are necessary, what aren't, so on and so forth, right? So I get it, but 
the ways that we have to do that and the fact that this will impact so many people in ways that we can predict and not predict, I think means that instead of, I know that on a sort of in a, in a regular setting, details would be judicious, but at this point, I think it's much more judicious to slow down, get input, run a participatory process, right? Build not just expertise, right? And, and create this, like, figure out a technologically and politically, you know, smart plan going forward, but also to really communicate and stand in our values about not leaving frontline communities behind, not treating people as disposable, not treating communities as bargaining chips. And that kind of uh, commitment has to come through how you do it too. And I think we also have to be honest, like the environmental movement and again, I, I'm new, so but just from what I've seen, it it can be a contentious, and not even the environmental movement, just environmental policy, uh, like a lot of areas, but can be a pretty contentious um, space. And some of the reasons that some things haven't been super successful in the past is that they haven't, there doesn't seem to have been like as much sort of buy-in built early or as much thoughtfulness about how do you do that through a policymaking process. And I get it. That's it's very difficult. It's time consuming, et cetera. But the fact is that, like, if we were to come out with details now, we would break some pretty crucial alignments. And I think some of our opponents know that. Also, sometimes the rush to push for details is a push to also help dissolve this from folks who are not good faith actors. It's some concern trolling by opponents who don't want to agree a new deal, don't want to deal exactly. with climate change, who don't want to just transition, who want to push you to provide details before there's been a democratic process to figure out what those details should look like. Exactly, because they know that that will break alignment. People will fall out. Communities will feel like they weren't consulted. We were we will inevitably put something on paper that negatively impacts some core constituencies and we won't have noticed it, but they will notice it and we'll have already come out, right? Or, you know, and people will feel like they're cut out of the process because what we always emphasize is like, this is the ground floor. Like we are figuring it out. We are building relationships at new consensus. We are, you know, figuring out how to move forward, what processes to have in place so that people can put in feedback and it will be meaningful and that they can be carried along throughout the process, providing feedback as we come up with things, et cetera. Um, and that takes time. And I think it's also not the way a lot of policies done. So I think it strikes a lot of people as silly. I think in the end, it will lead, it will lead to a much better product, both in terms of the quality of the policy, the thoughtfulness of it, the mechanisms that we're using, and also just be an intervention in a space that has really treated certain people as sacrifices to move out of that and to be thinking about what policy solutions are on the table when you make uh, equity a non-negotiable. Because a lot of people get, you know, come at us about we should take that out because it'll make it too difficult. But I think the fact is that we haven't done it seriously enough in in really any policy area um, to know like what what could be on the other side of that because too often we don't put that stake in the ground even when it needs to be there. And not only is that the right thing to do, but how do you build a popular mass constituency for a transition if people, as you're saying, can't see the other side of it and don't see themselves coming out better? on the other side. Exactly. Like the pragmatic critique of the Green New Deal is totally backwards. 
it yeah it's it's weird and like i said i understand where it comes from 100% this is a interesting way to, it's a different way to do policy and a lot of times actually these sort of participatory mechanisms haven't had the best outcome not because they were bad but usually because they were either poorly designed or they weren't funded well enough or the timeline wasn't actually realistic for whatever reasons and so i think some people just are like that doesn't make any sense but i don't think there's a way to to one do the policy smartly much less build like you said a real uh, robust movement without without doing it that way and so i just to me like this this approach is so do the most judicious one that we could have chosen even though it causes some anxiety around, among among folks. And like I said, I get it, but I think it's also at the end of the day, we're trying to seem serious to the American people, not serious to other wonks, right? Like there's an element of, of obviously we have to, people have to take this seriously and to the extent so that they want to work with us, want to participate and that we care about. But ultimately the Green New Deal has to make people feel like, we care that we listen, that this plan is a plan to protect them and usher them into a better moment in our history and in our lives and in our economy, and that that moment is possible. That's the other thing that I think that's the most cr- frustrating critique that I, I that I hear, which not, is not the, the lack of details. It's this idea that like the system that we have, we can't change it, that it is just like as though God breathed it down and now we have it. Instead of that, it's a man-made system that if it no longer works, if there are things that need to be changed, we can change them. There is another thing possible. It's neoliberalism. As, as Margaret Thatcher said, there is no alternative. Yeah, but there, the, yeah, exactly. There's, and it's hegemony now. And of course, it's the same thing. Once something becomes hegemonic, it becomes the air you breathe and any time you step out of it, people assume that you don't understand the world rather than you believe that the world could be something different. And the cult of pragmatism has nothing to do with what's actually pragmatic. The, the climate technocrats, of course, love a carbon tax and carbon tax probably like has you know a role to play within a transition. But exactly how high would a carbon tax have to be to keep us below the scientifically determined temperature level beyond which we're going to have total climate catastrophe. These are like the, I don't remember the numbers off the top of my head, but they're enormous, the size of the taxes. And how pragmatic would getting that through Congress be? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The IPCC report, uh, I think is like $190 to like five, to almost like $600 a ton, if I'm remembering it correctly. And I thought it was really interesting because like the Washington Post put out, uh, like, if you want a Green New Deal, here's a smarter one. And they pitched their um, climate, uh, their carbon tax, like towards the middle of that, uh, which was like, okay, <laughs> you know. But it, even they weren't at the highest end of it. And there's, you know, all these discussions about carbon tax and, and its effects, how it's difficult to have a f- effects um, on transportation and sort of industry unless it's really high. Right. So like you said, I think it's an open question. It's an open debate. But pragmatism is ultimately what's pragmatic, especially in a situation where we are as scary as it is to face the science, like we are, if we don't deal with this, we will be in a different like geological, like epoch. We will be in a totally different like climate moment than we have ever been in, right? This is serious. And so to me, 
pragmatism in this setting is like what's pragmatic is solving the problem, right? And what's pragmatic is reducing emissions on the timeline that folks have set out. And we have to reduce emissions by almost 50% by like 2030, right? That's huge. And that's emissions like economy-wide, not just in one sector, right? Um, And so we have to solve the problem because I don't understand what's pragmatic about not doing that and then having effects that you don't even, we don't even fully comprehend or understand right now. Like we know how bad it will be, but we don't know the full scale of second order effects. We don't know what unpredictable things could happen, right? In terms of weather and weather events. I was just, you know, reading about how folks are, aren't really sure how climate impacts like tornado formation and, and what's happening there. And so I don't understand how not dealing with the full scope of the problem and then creating a cascade of effects that you, the extent of which you don't fully understand, but you know will be enormous, how that is more pragmatic. It's the pragmatism of an ostrich. Oh, what does that mean? Like his head in the ground. <laughs> oh, oh, ah. Yeah, it, it kind of it is. And it's especially quite frightening when it feels like when you dig down into that pragmatism, what people are really trying to protect is the power relationships and the ways that we divide and capital and resources among different constituencies, right? And how that actually, when you dig down into some of these like alternative plans, not all of them, right? Some of them are, you know, lovely. When you talk to have some of these like long drawn out conversations about pragmatism, how, how much like an inability to see the ways that we could sort of change those structures, the ways that maybe there's something outside of neoliberalism about there's, you know, different ways to distribute resources and capital, like how much pragmatism is, is based on like not upsetting what we already have. And actually decarbonization is secondary to that concern, which is something because we hear that about the GND a lot. If it's about equity, is it really about decarbonization? And I'm like, is it if it's about pragmatism in the ways that it's being defined by lots of folks, is that really about decarbonization or is that about making sure that certain people can continue to make money? Some rather establishment Democrats, especially those running for president, are rushing to embrace the Green New Deal which on the one hand is great, but on the other hand, people are understandably a little concerned that they will push legislation with the Green New Deal brand that lacks all of its important content. What should we be keeping an eye out for to ensure that they don't sneak anything watered down past us? Or relatedly, or perhaps another way to put it, what are the non-negotiables for anything deserving the name Green New Deal? Yeah. Well, the resolution is actually a great place because the resolution, um, besides I think laying out high level goals and projects and giving people a sense of like, what do we mean when we say green new deal was also about being a marker, putting in stakes in the ground and say like a green new deal has to include these things or it's not a green new deal. It can be a climate mitigation plan, right? Like it can be a lot of things that are lovely, right? And good, but it is not a green new deal. So let's get close. Let's like, let's just get clear about that. And so I think the there's five main goals in it. So it's decarb net zero emissions. It's creating millions of jobs, you know, large scale job creation. It's investing in infrastructure. It's ensuring. Um, and there's a list of these like clean air, clean 
water, essentially ensuring an inhabitable environment for all Americans. And then it is preventing future sort of economic, racial, social injustice, and redressing some of the harms that have been done in the past, particularly by mobilizations like the New Deal that left out particular communities. So those are the five main goals. Uh, I've heard people sort of narrow them down to three, two, which is decarbonization, job creation, and equity. And so I think that those are the, particularly those five goals, five or three, however you define it, are the stakes in the ground. And equity, I think all of them are. Um, But the one that I see people wanting to take out the most is equity. Surprising. Yeah, because it's seen as like a secondary thing. We can get to it later. Uh, And I mean, I as a black person, I know that that always happens. Uh, Equity always gets (laughs) figured out later, 100%. I mean, I look at 200 (laughs) years of history and I just see nothing but success, success, success. Um, And but that's the thing that people want to take take out the most. And so I think that we so that's the one that I think we talk about the most, partially because it's the one every people are fine with other goals. But that's the one they're like, mm, we could just like sneak that out. <laughs> We're like, no, you actually can't because and we insist upon that, not just not because it's like political grandstanding or whatever, but because when that is a stake in the ground, when you say that, like, Whatever solution that you have that you come forward with about decarbonization, because there are many paths forward, as we all know, whatever solutions that you have cannot create more inequity for frontline communities. And in the resolution, it defines frontline communities, right? It's people of color. It's people who sort of like live near polluting sites, disabled folks, elderly, et cetera, right? It cannot create more inequity for them. And actually it should be actively redressing some of the harms that are due to them through the structure of these programs and projects that we are, um, that, that agree. New- Including people working in extractive industries. Yep. Yep. That's also another frontline community that is crucial. And I mean, and Beyond that, like other, there are other right sectors that will be vulnerable too that we have to think about. But so, but when you put that in the center and you say that like this is not a bargaining chip, that changes the policies that are on the table. So we don't make a big fuss about it for no reason. It's because that sort of means that you're going to have to renegotiate some power relationships, right? That means that some, the structure of certain programs from, or projects or policies, right? You mentioned a carbon price earlier, and I know that's one people like to talk about, but even something like upgrading all homes and buildings, which is another project, those, the ways that you do those when equity is not negotiable changes fundamentally. And so if you take that out of the equation, you end up with a totally different worldview. I want to ask you about a few critiques of the resolution brought up by my colleagues, Alyssa Battistoni and Danielle Adonacone. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, they've been involved in this big Green New Deal series at Jacobin and have, as you likely know, been very, very supportive of it overall. But they have a few critiques. One, they write, quote, the resolution's soft spot is its failure to take a truly hard line on fossil fuel companies. What's your response to that? Does the resolution, perhaps for sound tactical reasons, put off what will inevitably have to be this enormous knockdown, drag out fight to the literal death with big oil and the rest of them? 
Actually, well, I have two responses to that. I think one is that the resolution does say a shift to 100%, I think, clean, renewable, and maybe it's net zero, or I can't remember the third one, right? But 100% of one means 0% of another, right? So, <laughs> so inevitably, even if it's not, I mean, said explicitly, I think it's very clear that we can't get to where we're going if we're still using fossil fuels, right? So that is, that's one thing. I think the second thing, but I, I do take the critique and totally understand. The second thing is that like, we actually at New Consensus particularly think a lot about corporate power and have from the beginning of our work on it, although we haven't been public about it because because of the participatory process, I think we do a lot of work internally that we don't talk about uh, to sort of figure out the lay of the land because we don't want to speak because we recognize that we have power in the situation in the sense that we are the ones sitting in this organization that's working on it. And so what we say can easily get construed as what's in the green new deal. And we don't want to speak right before yeah. we, we've spoken to our collective. So we're, we're really careful about that. But Corporate power is something that we take incredibly seriously. It's something that actually I reached out to some colleagues at different organizations about, uh, including the Roosevelt Institute, because they do a ton of really interesting work on corporate power and and public sector, right? Um, but to do some of this thinking, because there is no there is no universe where fossil fuel, especially if we're doing this right uh, with uh, frontline communities at the center, there is no universe where the fossil fuel company uh, and the industry does not come for us with their full force and might and money. And so we recognize that and we are thinking through that uh, internally, at least. And I think um, that will come out over time, for sure. Another critique is that, quote, housing is just a bullet point in the resolution, yet 17 yeah. percent of American tenant households pay over half their income in rent. Meanwhile, buildings consume nearly 40 percent of the country's energy. Could housing be more central to the proposal? That's a good question. I mean, I think it could be, and we'll see how it develops. I know that one of the reasons that it wasn't, I think, as prominent in the resolution could be because that housing is such a big issue that it won't be dealt with entirely through a Green New Deal and, and other, and it, it will have to be dealt with an additional in addition to the Green New Deal through parallel movements or other policies. But it's a critique that we get often and is one that we're thinking about definitely more on the new consensus side, because um, there is an element in the resolution that is all about upgrading new buildings, or not upgrading new buildings, but upgrading all buildings and replacing buildings. But I think there's definitely like more work at least on the new consensus end that we need to do on that. Because we recognize how much energy buildings you know, take up, obviously, like you said, 40%. But the question of like how to involve that with affordable housing is one that I think is actually really thoughtful and can be done in some really smart ways uh, that we just need to spend more time thinking about. So I'm glad people have brought it up. It's made us think about it, I think, a bit more actively than we might have otherwise. And I think we can come up with some good, some good ways forward, for sure. Where do the, the energy wonks fit in here? Because Energy experts believe that getting renewable energy to over 50, 60, or even 70% of the grid entails enormous technical challenges, as you're very well aware. And those yeah. include, at minimum, construction of a lot of new energy transmission lines through rural spaces, also 
major issues around storage at scale. Is this the kind of thing that new consensus is going to work on directly, or do you view those kinds of technical challenges as something that that others are going to handle while while you are are more focused on building this kind of basic political framework and commitment? No, it's something that we'll be working on for sure. And that we've like started having conversations about. Um, now, will we be the ones to come up with the final sterling solution? <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> uh, right. But are we, do we think it's incredibly important to be aware of the challenges and thinking about how do you design out from that? What kind of support needs to happen from an investment perspective? Right. Cause a lot of what we hear too, is that like, there are next gen sword solutions in the works, right. But they might need more money for research. They might not be ready to be commercialized. Right. Like there's, and so thinking about ways that we intervene, not intervene, but support the next, generation of these solutions that needs to come out. Um, so we actually t- talked to a lot of energy wonks who are helping us think through this, but I, and I think, I think that we will even just for the integrity of the plan have to put forward some ideas about how you deal with these techno technical solutions. And I think also like thinking about it in a, in a phased way, I think something that's so funny about the green new deal is I think because of the short timeline uh, of the 10 year, 10 years for the mobilization and the sort of size of it, people think that we're trying to do everything like all at once, but we recognize that a lot of this work, a lot of it will happen in 10 years. Some of it will be ongoing. Right. Um, And so you can also take, I think, a phased approach to, to where, how you decarbonize energy in different periods based on, on technology. And so we're thinking through all of that. Uh, but there's a lot of technological challenges, but there's also a lot of things that needed to get done anyway. Yep. That we've just been putting off forever. Right. Which also I think sometimes get lumped into like, it's very, you know, the technical challenges, um, which, you know, like even thinking about like energy markets, there are open questions about like, why do we structure energy markets the way that we do? Right. And there are structures that could be better for a macro grid, right. There's like, governance structures that can make transporting or like transmitting, generating and transmitting uh, energy from renewables much more reliable throughout the country and easier and and cheaper, way cheaper than our current system because it would be more efficient, right? And those are changes that and conversations that have been happening before we showed up, right? And that arguably could have and, and should have happened long ago are planning for them because we do have to move away from fossil fuel dependence on fossil fuels. And that could very well likely and not could, but will require sort of a different structure for our grid and some new ways that we think about energy governance. So I think there's an element of like, yes, there are new challenges, but there's also elements of like, these were challenges that we've just been kicking down the road that we were going to have to figure out anyway. Well, Rihanna Gunwright, thank you so much. Yeah, you. thank you. This was such a pleasure. Rihanna Gunn-Wright is the policy director for the new consensus think tank responsible for drafting the Green New Deal. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said after noting that capitalist production only develops the technique and the degree of combination of the social process of production by simultaneously undermining the original sources of all wealth, the soil and the worker. 
While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinator is Logan Dreher. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, and please find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes, please take a moment to leave us a nice review. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. So does you telling your friends about the show. Please make propaganda for us. And please also do find us at patreon.com slash the dig and make a monthly contribution to help this thing keep going strong. Even a few bucks is huge. Mm-hmm.